John, uh, I have bad news. My Capistrano is cursed. <laughs> really sorry. You know what, what What I like to do when I get a Capistrano, John, is I change it up. Instead of mayo, Caesar dressing. That's my Blasphemy. little variation on a Blasphemy. No way. That's not when a real Capistrano. Capistrano with the prosciutto and the set on there. You couldn't hold me down and force that into my mouth. That's not a Capistrano. <laughs> That's ju- just a little variation. Well, it's the Funderburg style Capistrano. John, what are we talking about today? What are we doing? What are we on? Here on the Peak Smoke website today, we're talking about The Curse of Capistrano, written by Johnston Macaulay 100 years ago. It's the 100th anniversary. It was originally yeah. published in 1919, September of 1990, as a uh, uh, five-part serial in the magazine All Story Weekly. And it was the introduction of a certain masked vigilante named Zorro, El Zorro the Fox. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. John, I'm excited to talk about this. We came to, we sort of decided to this, do this idea late. A lot of books we do on this show we've been talking about doing for a while. And then you pointed out, this is the 100th anniversary of Zorro. You and I are huge uh, swashbuckler fans who huge. came to the swashbucklers late in life. I think I, I saw Captain Blood when I was like 38 and mm-hmm. was like, oh my God, I know nothing about this genre. It's definitely a neglected genre, especially among cinephiles. I think it doesn't get taken uh, seriously for a lot of different reasons. But this is like one of the key uh, texts in it, one of the key stories in the swashbuckler genre. And I think you and I were both uh, excited to to read this book, which neither of us had read. Uh, the serials were published under the title Mark of Zorro after Douglas Fairbanks in 1920 uh, made a film called The Mark of Zorro, which you might notice is a much better title for it than The Curse of Capistrano. <laughs> and I think you and I just wanted to dig into this thing for the 100th anniversary, get into it. Yeah, because it's the same for me. You know, I can't say I grew up with the classic swashbucklers that we now love, like the Three Musketeers and Scaramouche, etc. But I certainly grew up with the influence, the things that were influenced by those, the Indiana Jones movies, the Star Wars movies, uh, every, I think, action, classic action film that you'll see that bears a mark, the mark of Zorro bears the, has the curse of Capistrano on it, and that they are clearly influenced by these great swashbucklers from, uh, the well going from 1920 from the Fairbanks movies up into the the 30s and 40s yeah yeah absolutely that it's it was one of the most consistent and durable genres for a long time and unlike westerns which I feel like um, have had so many influential advocates like the French New Wave critics and the new Hollywood guys um, people haven't as vocally defended the swashbuckler genre in the same way. Definitely not. Yeah. And, uh, you know, is that because, you know, the swashbuckler genre never had its own, you know, the wild bunch? I think it's, I think it's a genre that's notably resistant to cynicism and meta commentary. Um, that it's, that it's an earnest, fun loving, uh, inspiring genre that it's sort of in its nature peddles romantic ideals in some way. And I think that it's a lot easier. I think a lot more critics and historians in particular are comfortable with cynicism than idealism. And I think that's part of the reason uh, that it, that it as a genre gets overlooked a little bit or maybe, maybe discredited. I mean, and also like it's hard to deny these films appeal to kids and a lot of them are targeted towards children. 
Yeah, there's no way to bend these to like a mature audience the way you can obviously uh, have revisionist westerns be about you know the change of the of society in America or the way that things were going yeah. or the the way that things were dying out specifically. Uh, swashbucklers are a celebration of a gay time when you know things were uh, when, when the, there was oppression, but you could stand up against it and quash it yeah. out. By the end, everyone's going to be happy. Uh, the maiden will be saved. You know, it is definitely a classic fantasy tale. Yeah. So I think because of that, and it firmly kind of believes in what you're saying that 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 the downtrodden can fight back. Mm-hmm. You know that that that's what these stories are driven by. That there are good people in the government. You know that there are good noblemen as well, which I think is an idea that a lot of people no longer believe in at all. Especially the kind of people who end up in academia and writing histories about these kind of things, and who end up in the arts. That the the idea that um, you know you can fight back. And there's also you know in these films there's a lot of you know racially questionable casting is one of its consistencies to have, you know, red-haired Maureen (laughs) O'Hara playing, uh, you know, a a Spanish Contessa in Spanish Maine, you know, things like that. Uh, That's part of it too. But I think too, when you think about like as far into cynicism as these stories are willing to go, I think what it is, is what they have to say is that war and conflict is stupid, right? Yes. I think that these characters stand apart from these factions, these political factions that are um, assaulting each other and executing people and doing things wrong because the idea is that it's all a farce. It's all ridiculous. Yeah, politics heroes is understand. Game. Yes, yeah. understand. heroes survive by understanding that they can live outside of that and that they can step in effortlessly in this one area that they decide to step into and make things right within this texture because you can just untie this thing so easily. If you're able yeah. to step back and have this sort of you know, I mean, the, the Scaramouche, you know, disguising himself as a clown. Uh, uh, who's Scaramouche? I can't think of his name. Uh, Moreau, Andre Moreau. Moreau. Andre Moreau disguising as a clown in Scaramouche, you know, is a comment on, you know, he's a fool and he's a romantic fool, but it takes a romantic fool to understand that the way that everything is laid out in this government, in this uh, area that they're in, is absurd and and cruel and inhuman that they're the one person who can step in and make it right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that right and wrong are self-evident, right? And one of the the great scenes I love and sort of, not one of the the very best uh, swashbucklers, but one that I think is sort of the height of like solid craftsmanship adventures of Don Juan. Don Juan is sent back uh, home uh, sort of under orders of like stop misbehaving and getting into trouble, right? And he doesn't want to be involved in uh, politics. He doesn't want to be involved in court intrigue. He gets back home and there's a press gang forcing people uh, essentially into slavery to serve as soldiers. And the moment he sees the press, he's like, hey, I'm staying out of everything. The moment he sees the press game, he's like, oh, fuck this shit. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. That it's like, hey, I'm not involved in politics, but you see a press game, you're like, oh, I got to kill these guys. You know, like they're not, yeah. they're not making anyone slaves. Not while Don Juan is here. Yeah. Know, once they actually make up. a move to help the, you know, the situation, then yeah that's when they become the person that they are but even that he goes back he's like you know i'm not on the side of this guy or that guy i'm on the side of right and wrong because i can't be anything else 
that he has that ability to step into the situation, make it right, and then step out again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just to steer things towards the story of Zorro, uh, Dumo's Count of Monte Cristo, right? Should we do our pairings before we jump into it? We will, we will, we okay. will. But I mean, I'm just going to steer yes, in that yes, direction yes, yeah. to say Dumo's uh, Count of Monte Cristo, uh, the story of a man, Edmond Dantes, who is unjustly uh, persecuted, sent to prison for life. Basically, his life is stripped away from him. All he needs, once he, once he realizes, you know, that he's going to go back, get revenge, all it takes really is getting a bunch of money. He just gets this treasure and he goes back and suddenly he's, he's respected. Suddenly everybody cares about what he has to say and he can hold court and be this fake figure because he realizes at this point, it's all surface, right? It's all just, you know, impressions. People yeah. only care about you if you have status. And yes. that's the way things are worked out. And that is how he's ultimately able to infiltrate this uh, corrupt structure and take it apart and get his revenge is because he realizes at that point, it's all just a big joke and I can easily, it's, it's not going to be hard at all to. Yeah, that bloodlines are not true. They're them. fakeable. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that to take down this, these corrupt structures are as simple as entering, to, entering into it. And I think that there is, you know, obviously, like we're talking about, it's not simple to enter into those structures. It's not simple to take them down. Uh, but I think that that's one of the things I, I, find enjoyable about these movies is an ironclad sense of right and wrong in the face of sort of political maneuvering you know the heroes yeah. in these movies always are the guys who want you to speak plainly they're never the guys uh in back rooms making secret plans I, I mean i guess they are sometimes you know like the three musketeers style of swashbuckler is all about like just these dudes caught up in court intrigue like i don't even know yeah yeah part will be behind the curtain sort yeah. Of, yeah 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 but there is that intrigue but at the same time you're right everyone's a black there's they're white and black shirts in these stories you know yeah it's not a realistic representation of how things are but it's a romantic one yes and that's it's that romance that makes these stories so much fun and so much yeah, and so easy to enjoy. Yeah, romantic and idealized stories are important. I mean, you can't eat them for every meal. You know, you can't have ice cream for breakfast for every meal. But if there's some <laughs> lunatic out there who's arguing that you should never eat ice cream, like, I don't want to meet that person. I don't want to live that life, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And also that ice cream can't be a delicious delicacy on the order of anything you can eat, you know, that any dessert, you know, maybe maybe ice cream isn't the right comparison. Maybe, you know, things like creme brulee are a better comparison, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly if you know, someone's arguing, going to see a big, dumb Hollywood movie saying, ah, you know, I like to just turn my brain off for a while. It's like, well, then turn your brain off to Lester's Three Musketeers instead, you know? Yeah. There are lots of things that are very smart, but very fun at the same time. Yes. These movies are fun in a way that I, like you mentioned, like, what are the movies I've had fun at? in my life and it's like you have those movies when you're a kid you can have fun at ghostbusters and indiana jones and stuff like that as an adult mm. i don't necessarily have fun watching those movies as an adult these are the like the only movies i've had fun at in the past 10 years <laughs> yeah you know i guess horror movies too i have a lot of fun with although that's a more complex um description of what fun is. certainly the baggage of horror movies don't apply to these at yeah. all um but yeah so I hadn't read Curse of Capistrano at all. Yes. Very excited to have gotten into it. Uh, finally, I was surprised because I've lived with Zorro. I mean, I've not 
had a time Let's where I didn't know who Zero was. That's we what we're going to do now, our pourings. I'm just going to say I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. You want to go ahead and go first? What's your, uh, uh, your appetif? Aperitif. My aperitif. This is what you should ingest before you read uh, The Curse of Capistrano. It is Cartouche, Philippe de Broca's film from 1962, starring the great Jean-Paul Balmondo. This is a French swashbuckler, and it's basically about an outlaw who's in a uh, an outlaw band, and he realizes, like, these guys have no morals. I don't want to be in an outlaw band, so he becomes a soldier and is like, wait, these guys don't have any morals either, you know, so they, they end up robbing, uh, uh, essentially, there's like a shipment of gold that they steal, him and a couple friends, and uh, the gypsy woman that he falls in love with, played by Cardi- Claudia Cardinal, and use that money to sort of... Um, form their own outlaw gang, which they uh, become uh, Robin Hood type figures. And this is the best of the um, French swashbucklers in the 60s and 70s. In the 60s, there were a lot of French swashbucklers. In the 70s, there were a lot of Italian swashbucklers. And I tend to group them together because on the whole, they're not that great. This is the best of them. And it has a little bit of a French New Wave sensibility to it, a little bit of adventurousness and vitality that you associate with Belmondo in like A Woman is a Woman or Paro Le Fou. He's sort of in that mode a little bit. Um, but at the same time, it's a, a straight ahead swashbuckler. In a lot of ways, to me, it predicts Richard Lester's uh, Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers films that came in the early 70s. It's almost impossible for me to imagine that Lester hadn't seen this movie before making his movies. Um, that's how much of a, a uh, antecedent it feels to me. Or precedent, sorry. That's how much of a precedent it feels to me uh, leading up to that. And it's a ton of fun. You know, it's just a ton of Very fun. Charming movie. Now looks so unbelievably gorgeous. Um, it's you know, it's 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 a great looking movie. It's a well put together looking movie. Like a lot of swashbucklers in the Robin Hood mode, it's episodic and at times you might feel like where is any of this going but it's so amiable you sort of don't care when the when the plot lulls a little bit yeah that was one that uh you had uh, only recently discovered when we had our big swashbuckler i discovered years all ago. of these recently yeah so yeah so that was uh that was really cool because i had no idea that the cartouche was uh was one of the good ones so it definitely is fantastic yeah and what is your aperitif pairing Mr. So I wanted to choose. Uh, I wanted to, to choose one of the other serial heroes from that that era, from the twenties and thirties. Um, I didn't want to go too obvious with the shadow, so I went with the B version of the shadow, uh, which is the spider, who was actually created uh, by um, the opposed the uh, competing publication. Uh, shadow was released by Street and Smith Publications, and the spider was uh, popular publications to basically be a carbon copy of the shadow, but their own version uh, of that character. So you've got the black domino mask, you've got the black hat and cape. Uh, He's a millionaire playboy, alter ego, who has served as a major in World War I and is now living in uh, New York during the Great Depression. Uh, He fought villains like the octopus, which is also one of the main villains of the spirit. Uh, And then the excellently named Dr. Torture. Yes. Uh, the wreck is another. And are these? Is this a serial? Is the serial movies? Are these comic books? Are these radio shows? What are? There were some movies made, but no, it was a a regular serial in magazines. Okay. Hundreds and hundreds of stories by different 
writers. It was created by Harry Steger in 1933, but there were many, many authors who ended up ultimately writing these stories of this guy who had no no compunction against killing his villains. It should be noted. That's something he does not share with El Zorro. Yeah. Um, well, Dr. Torture deserves to die. If you yeah, ask me. Obviously, Dr. Torture has, has it coming. But uh, he also has this compulsion to fight crime. It's the kind of thing where it's, you feel like he literally couldn't do anything else. Like he wouldn't know how to do anything if he couldn't don the mask and go out in the night and defeat these villains. So uh, to, to have a specific thing to recommend, there were uh, two collections of stories released by Bain Books about 10 years ago uh, that, you know, a compilations of stories with excellent covers by Jim Steranko. The first one's called The Spider, City of Doom. And then the next one's called uh, The Spider, Robot Titans of Gotham. And uh, those are all stories written by Norvell Page, who was one of the main writers of the serial. So very much, you know, obviously the, the precursors to Zora were the Robin Hoods and the Reynard the Foxes, Scarlet Pimpernel, by about 10 to 15 years came before Zero yeah. Zorro, but Zorro himself, we'll I think talk probably the most, yeah, yeah the, the most influential for the pulp heroes of that era. Yes. Going up, leading up into Batman, of course. So. And just to jump right into Curse of Capistrano, this is on this podcast, we talk about pulp novels. This is the pulpiest thing we have ever read, right? Isn't that fair to say? I would say so, yeah. Just the way it's structured, how little... Uh, breath it wastes on anything but describing action and dialogue you know um it is it is uh in some ways an incredibly thin novel i like this book i really enjoyed reading this book it is repetitive it does run out of steam well before the end uh it is uh sort of head scratchingly strange as to what it wants you to think about certain things which we can get into but first and foremost uh, what needs to be said about it is it's a scarlet pimpernel ripoff you know sure. there's, yeah. there's no better way to describe it for those of you who don't know the basic plot of the curse of capistrano is you have don diego Le- de la vega right who is the well in the book we should note it's don diego vega Don Diego Vega. And I had the day law until later in the movies. Yes. And he is a nobleman from one of the most powerful families in all of Southern California. This movie, uh, this book takes place in Southern California in uh, proto Los Angeles, you know, back when it's, it's just a series of the, the, my God, not haciendas, you know, um, it's, it's, you know, it oh, the, 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 the frailies of the mission. Yes. It yeah. takes place in the mission, the frailies, all of this sort of thing. And it's um, about this nobleman who pretends to be a fop who couldn't possibly be uh, involved in heroism, right? Who is secretly Zorro and Zorro is wily like a fox who steals from rich and gives to the poor and also sort of bands together a group of noblemen to stand up against the corrupt and authoritarian governor. And because they're noblemen with great uh, blood and powerful bloodlines and important names, the governor sort of has to to um, acquiesce to them in some way. That is the plot of the Scarlet Pimpernel, essentially, where there's a masked, <laughs> there's a masked uh, hero during the Reign of Terror and the French Revolution who gets all of the noblemen together to stand up against the corrupt uh, political authority figures, um, and it's very very similar. 
It's very, very mm-hmm. similar. It's about him leading a group of noblemen. It's, it's impossible to imagine this book's pitch wasn't Scarlet Pimpernel in Southern California. You yeah. know, uh, that's, that's how similar it is to it. It's far less um, bloated than Scarlet Pimpernel, which is a, a, uh, a really rough read. Um, mm. but it's a lot more adventure. Yes. A lot more, a lot more daring do. A lot more, a lot more daring do. And fun. Um, yeah. but, but I think we should talk about first just the portrayal of Don Diego Vega in this yes. book. I know that's one thing that we were really interested in. Uh, what we've talked about swashbucklers in the past is this alter ego who, you know, is a, a dandy, a fop. Yes. He acts like he's never touched the hilt of a sword before. Don't, don't he's ha He's tired him. out by riding his <laughs> horse for two hours. Right. He, spe- he specifically says to his father, please don't ha me. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's shouting ha in, in passion. He doesn't want anything to do with it. One of the things he's doing is that uh, he's, because his dad's like, you got to get married. Uh, he's wooing Lolita Polito, who's the daughter of a family that's fallen into disrepute uh, in opposition to the governor. And one of the things he does is he offers to pay a guitarist to come play underneath her window (laughs) when wooing her because, oh, it just seems so silly to him to go out and play guitar below somebody's window, you know? Macaulay gets so much humor out of his courting of Lolita or his refusal to court Lolita. One of my favorite lines was he tells, he says to her father, or in front of her, he says, uh, you're as beautiful as the last time I saw you. And her father throws up his hands and says, you should tell her she's more beautiful than the last time you saw her. <laughs> yeah. And he just does all these things on purpose to, you know, make her realize that he is not a lover, not a Lothario in any way. But that brings me to my first question for you. Does this book expect you to not understand that Diego Vega is Zorro. That was my very question. Obviously, it's uh, going to be tough <laughs> to to have to keep introducing this character, Don Diego, who has nothing to do with the story practically and not have the reader guess that he's really Zorro. And the moment he leaves, Zorro shows up. And the minute he leaves, over Zorro and over and over and over, at least <laughs> 12 times. But it, it's clear that Macaulay wanted to at least make it I don't know if he thought just in the narrative and with the relation to the other characters, it would be something of a surprise because even when he gets inside of Diego's head, right? He's saying things like, he never says, got to go and put my Zorro mask on. He says, you know, he was worried about what was happening or he had to get to the Hacienda, whatever. Yeah. It's never a, it's never a blatant thing where it's like, he's thinking, well, now I got to get serious about this. We never until the end, you know, have him engage as Zorro. No, it's played like a big reveal. And yeah. as a serial, it feels like, were they trying to milk that? Like, keep reading these and then you'll get to find out who Zorro is, you know? Mm, right, um, right. And there's but, nobody But there's no else other suspect. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. no one. Everyone else is a supporting character or a clear villain. Yeah. So there's no one it could be but Don Diego. So I think... I think he's he was... literally in the scene with every other character. Like, I think Zorro interacts with every other character that's featured in the book, but Don Diego. Yes. Even. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there's literally no other choice for who it could be. Unless maybe you're supposed to think it's Bernardo, the deaf mute sidekick. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Since he is just in the background the whole time. Uh, yeah. Maybe it was him all along. I, that's the one character I think that maybe, as a reader, you could think, oh, why is that character? 
oh what's he here but looking around in the background (laughs) when when the book is inside uh his head inside bernardo's head he's like i can't understand anything because i'm deaf you know which was really interesting because obviously in a lot of the famous zorro movies and tv shows bernardo uh fakes his deafness as yes. a way to help Don Diego, as a way to get information and be around the bad guys and spy. Yeah. Uh, in this book, though, there's no indication that he is faking it. He seems like he actually is a deaf mute. Yes. So. And that's one of the things we should talk about is that from the beginning, the movies, I really enjoyed this book. The movies fix and improve upon the book, starting with the Douglas Fairbanks, which Hughes very close to the novel in a very lot of ways. Very faithful adaptation. Yeah. But changing it to Mark of Zorro is like, dude, it's not called Curse of Capistrano anymore. Just for the record, Mark of Zorro. Right, how do you come up with a name like Zorro and then not have his name in the title? Exactly. And then also, like, what I love about the Fairbanks version is it also realizes only at the end of Zorro does he sort of, you hear that he cuts a Z into things, but I think he only does it twice in the book, and then he cuts it into the villainous uh, uh, Captain Ramon's head at the end of it. And it's like, oh shit, that's Zorro, you know? Mm -hmm. In the movie, he's slicing Zs into every fucking thing. Like the first (laughs) shot of the movie is a guy with a Z, a bad soldier with a Z carved into his cheek. Then he carves up a Z into a poster, Z into a guy's butt. Like he's carving, and like, that's awesome. Like Zorro should be slashing Zs into everything he can. They said at the time, this Fairbanks guy, he's slashing Zs. It's unquestionably an improvement. And then I would say that the essential Zorro text is not Curse of Capistrano. It's the um, 1940 version with Tyrone Power, Mark of Zorro. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, this creates the Zorro story as you know it. You know, it mm-hmm. gets rid of the multiple uh, sort of amorphous villains, you know, like there's sort of in the book, it introduces Sergeant Gonzalez, who you think is going to be the main villain, and then he's not. And then it introduces Captain Ramon, who you think is going to be the main villain, and he's not. And then it introduces the governor, who you think is going to be the main villain, and he's not. And they all sort of come along later and later. The book consolidates and rearranges that. So you have the governor, who's bad, and then you have Captain Ramon, who's this incredibly talented uh, sidekick swordsman fencer it sets up that don diego has been away in spain studying um uh sword fighting so then when he comes back that's how we know he's a sword fighter it's also how nobody knows that he's potentially very good as a swordsman and it allows him to put on the foppish uh persona uh more interrupt uh uh more convincingly you know that it also gives some stakes in what's going on because in the book you know it's the politos they're friends of his and he's uh, falls in love with Lolita, obviously. So he was yeah. looking out for them. But in the movie, they said specifically that it's his father who is the hot-blooded uh, uh, rebel who, who's against the governor and the corrupt exactly. governor and wants to do something about it. And so Diego realized he has to be involved too, but the best way to do it is to pretend he doesn't care and to just lounge around and slowly work his way up into this vigilante mm. program that he has set up. Exactly. And Tyrone Power is so fucking funny in the role. It's so enjoyable. Um, but it's also, it's the traditional, uh, which you've seen a lot of swashbucklers of a guy is away either, you know, as on a mercantile ship or taking a long journey and he comes home and everything's fucked up when he gets home, you know, which I think is a good 
uh, it's a very solid way of setting up these stories as he comes back and he's like, what, you know, what the hell is going on here? I got to do something as opposed to, you know, the more slow simmering, why now? for Don mm-hmm. Diego to sort of rally the other caballeros, you know, uh, uh, Mexican uh, noblemen of noble blood. Uh, why, why does he rally them all together then? And he also doesn't, you know, it's more about in the, the Mark of Zorro rallying the, uh, the frails and the natives together, the religious order and the natives than it is about the noblemen, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Which I think is another good change, which I think steps it away from Scarlet Pimpernel, which again is is not it's a book you read now and you're like wait you want me to be on the side of the noble fighting against (laughs) democracy i'm not sure i'm with you you know especially since macaulay sets up specifically that the noblemen who are at first enlisted to chase Zorro are just doing it to do something they're bored right they just want to have some adventure in their lives and then as soon as Zorro stirs them up then it's like oh well this is an even better adventure to turn against the government yeah it almost seems like a complete whim to them to want to do it it makes a lot more sense for him to actually have the oppressed rise up against their oppressors. Exactly. It makes much more sense for the people that are being unfairly whipped in town to be the ones <laughs> that, that turn around. And again, I'm, it makes it yeah. uh, more in line with a Robin Hood story, which is fundamentally, uh, you know, those are one of the main sort of four types of, of swashbucklers is the Robin Hood story about the outlaw who steals from the rich to give to the poor, you know, is a very classic swashbuckler story. Yeah. A lot of improvements, obviously, from this this original text, not the least of which having him not wear a giant sombrero. Um, Yes. And a full face mask. Yeah, yeah. And a full face mask that he literally has to lift up if he wants to take a a drink or kiss a senorita. Yes. Um, But I think that this works really well, though, as a blueprint for what was done. Yes. It's uh, definitely worth reading. It's definitely got some cool stuff and i think the main thing it gets right that would just be a staple to the story yeah forever would be just the the brashness of zorro you yeah. know the 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 suave the suavity and the uh the, the assuredness of the yeah. character you know that he feels he feels invincible and so he is he never thinks that the danger is coming to him or an actual threat you know he's yeah he's so sure in his own skill as a swordsman and as uh, for his own cleverness, his own tricks, and his own horsemanship, that he doesn't even he doesn't even concern himself, and it gives you sort of an interesting, almost Superman sort of quality. Another thing I realized about Diego, the Diego persona in this, is yeah. he's, he's much more Clark Kent than he is Bruce Wayne, right? Oh, absolutely! He, he literally yeah. makes himself out to be the complete opposite of who he yeah. really is, the complete wimp. Um, and he's and a lot also more- when you say brashness, I just wanted to mention one thing that I think is great about this character is he's willing to play dirty at all times, but mm-hmm. he's always fair. You know what I mean? Like he'll pull out a, re- a revolver, a pi- not a revolver, a pistol and be like, everybody back up. And all the swordsmen are like, oh, you coward. And he's like, well, now I'll fight you one on one. He's got to set it, set the tables, uh, balance the tables first. Yeah. Then, yeah. He plays dirty, but fair. You know, yeah. it's it's a very interesting, very swashbuckler thing. And when you read it, you definitely feel like we got a hit on our hands. You know, <laughs> unquestionably, you read it and you're like, yeah, okay, <laughs> we somebody just gave us our license to print money. Mm-hmm. You know, it it it's and especially because Zorro's fun, but when it interests interests uh, Don Diego, those sections are hilarious. 
you know, and it's just, it all works so good. And the cruelty that's enacted is so hissably bad. And the villains are such like boasting, lying oaths. Like they're constantly saying that, you know, Zoro got the drop on me or Zoro stabbed me in the back. And then Don Diego's like, oh no, tell me more about that. And sort of goading them into lies, more and more (laughs) lies. And he was, he and a band of 20 men, you know, you know, surrounded me kind of thing. And it's, very enjoyable it's very very enjoyable stuff you just feel like this character is going to last forever which he basically has which is another thing i think that you have to give macaulay in terms of what he was willing to make the audience understand that diego is actually zorro you wouldn't appreciate these moments as much if there was any confusion as to whether he was the guy yeah yeah exactly you'd just be like this dude is irritating not this guy's really (laughs) funny like this guy's fucking with them that's what i that's why i don't understand its perspective it, yeah. it's just too easy to figure out but again like it's pulpy it it feels like the it, like it was published like as he's writing it as that feel yeah. like there's no one did a second draft of this like but there's also the again pages coming off out, out of his pen or off his probably pre-typewriter like he's uh you know it's in the book you know also, yeah yeah, yeah. He, but he got it but he puts so much into this iconic character. I mean, he talks about his cunning use of darkness. Uh, he talks about his sword play, how he controls his temper and holds his ground. Um, yeah. There's a lot of great descriptions. I love the cool action moment towards the end where Lolita's horse is literally falling out from under her and he scoops her up into his yeah. horse as she's falling. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of very cool stuff in this story. Yeah, and she's awesome. And I'd say she's yes. more awesome than she is in any of the movies where she like refuses to surrender and like puts the pistol to her breast and is like, I'll kill myself and you'll get in trouble because I'm a noble woman. Like, and they're like, what are you going to do? And she's like, I'm going to get on this horse and fucking ride and go find Zorro. And then she bolts it and they're all like, oh my God, she's a better rider than us. What are we going to do? Yeah, and, 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 and the fact and the fact that she... Uh, refuses Don Diego when her family is in a very dire situation. And yes. Really, she should sacrifice her own happiness to, you know, help their fortunes and help herself. You know, they, they take her over to uh, Diego's hacienda thinking, oh, when she sees the opulence, the, the, the richness of his home, she'll immediately want to marry him. Yeah. The fact that she resists that because she's not in love with him yeah, is a very, like, I need a very strong man. character trait. Yeah. I also like that her parents support her. Like, uh, you know, it's her heart. You know, like you're not ruining us with do what you can do. They more go to Don Diego and are like, guy, get it together. They're more annoyed <laughs> with him than anything else. Yeah. And, I and like, like that, you said, that stuff is hilarious. Her scene with Captain Ramon, where he's sort of like, hey, I'm the brash, respectable soldier who's risen from the ranks. I came from nothing. I'm awesome. I'm going to take you now. Her resistance to him is really cool too. She comes across as, as a sort of unimpeachable character. And I think that a lot of swashbucklers are, we haven't mentioned first and foremost romances, you know, that Scaramouche and Captain Blood and the, and certainly um, Adventures of Don Juan is an interesting variation on it. These are romances first and foremost. And this book is a romance too. You know, this book Mm -hmm. is very much a romance and her sort of goodness of heart uh, in terms of romance is what signals to us that she's an appropriate match for Don Diego's goodness of heart. You know, that she's the representation of the best that the system 
has to offer, right? That she's a mm-hmm. noble woman like the queen in Adventures of Don Juan or the, you know, again, the, the governor's daughter in Captain Blood, right? That they're mm-hmm. representatives of the best the system has to offer. And these books are about marrying an outlaw sense of justice with the good heart lurking somewhere inside of an exploitative system. Yeah. Maid Marian. Sure. Exactly. It's about the fantasy that there can be goodness in a system. You've just got to get a rogue, you know, who to, who's willing to prove what's right to win it, to win them over. And I, it's, what? it's, yeah. yeah. One subplot that's often in the Zora movies that I missed from this a little bit was his relationship to his father. Yeah. Uh, I've already said that, you know, his father isn't as directly involved with what's going on in uh, Los Angeles. But even then, you know, because it's so ingrained in me, uh, these moments like uh, the, my, fir- my first Zora was the, the Disney version, the, the sign of Zora, the Guy Williams version. Yeah. Uh, it was eight different episodes of the TV show cobbled yeah. into one film. And it's still very good. It really holds up. Um, but it's specifically, fun. yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. The sword fighting, not so much, but it's, it's a fun <laughs> story. Uh, you just can't, you can't go from watching Tyrone Power to watching the sword fights and that and be like, yeah. Ugh. Well, um, Basil Rathbone. Basil Rathbone, right. As much as um, Power. Oh, of course, more so. Yeah. But um, the one thing that I love about it is his father uh, putting his life on the line, his position on the line, and being so disappointed by Don Diego, not knowing this whole time that Don Diego is Zorro, uh, his ideal, <laughs> everything he'd yeah. want in, in himself. Uh, so given that, that's always been in my head. And I always equate it also to the Wolfman, the story of uh, Lord, uh, Larry Talbot's and his father in that movie. In that both have nards? In that they both have nards. Um, <laughs> no, no, just this being, you know, having this rich father yes. and, and dealing with that and having the secret from them, which is funny because Anthony Hopkins was in both the, the, the more recent Zorro and the, the remake of the Wolfman. Yeah, um, yeah. 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 But anyway, so even having all that in my head, even though that store, even though that subplot is pretty much scarce from this original curse of Capistrano, when he reveals himself to his father at the end, I teared up a little bit. Absolutely. But <laughs> it's again, still this- yeah, this book does have the problem of it. Like I said, it doesn't feel like it was revised. The father character even feels like every new character introduced is like, oh, here's an idea for a character. And if it had been <laughs> rewritten, he would go put them back earlier in the story. But the other shit was published. So it's like, ah, ah here's another guy, you know, and the father definitely feels like that. He's introduced two thirds of the way through. He's very late in the game. <laughs> when you actually meet him on, on screen uh, or on the page, mm-hmm. uh, introduced very late. But it has that feel of like, you know, that, that uh, McCulley just thought of that guy. And who is he and what is he about? You yeah. know, beyond like he wants his son to get married. One of the other oh, staple I- characters who is better fleshed out is Frey Felipe yes. appearing in this, uh, you know, gets, uh, get flogged for, you know, uh, unjustly uh, been getting swindled. And then the other guy says it was him. Uh, he has that great line in this, uh, where he tells the, uh, I guess it's Gonzalez, take 10 years off my shoulders and I can drag you in the dirt. I love that line. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. And you like, believe it. No, this book is so full of awesome stuff. You know yeah. what I mean? It's so full of... It delivers on the awesome. It, de- it delivers. Absolutely. Yeah. Like everybody who you want to be cool does the cool shit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's mm-hmm. just, it's a fact. 
And even though I agree that, you know, it would have been more profound as it was in later films, you know, for the rabble to be the ones to rise up, yeah. the description of the Caballeros riding out to the rescue with their magnificent horses, their fancy yeah. saddles, the cloaks of finest material, the hats with plumes, yeah. you know, you totally get absorbed in that. That's a great visual. Yeah. And the governor thinking, thank God these guys are coming with <laughs> the hammer down and they're yes. like, put the hammer down on you, governor. Scram. <laughs> what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh that john that capistrano it's cursed um no but even fray felipe again he's introduced halfway into the book at least <laughs> you know yeah and and there's just like that that section's new introduction is but he's he, also the only one left to he and lolita are the other ones left to their own heroics after zorro yeah. leaves here at the mission and he has to you know, lie to Gonzalez and try to steer them away from her. And then yeah. how she um, holds the knife to her chest to get away. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, that's also a funny scene. Again, we're talking about Pulpy where they've searched the house and can't find her. And then there's a, uh, a bale of hay that's moving. And they're like, wait, what's in that bale of hay? And it's like, guys, start with the bale of hay. <laughs> it's, to be fair, it's hides. It's hides. Oh, it's is it hides? hides? Oh, yeah. you're right. You're <laughs> so right. they obviously didn't want to go near the stinky skinned hides, I think. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. In their like, defense. Yes, you're right. It's a pile of hides, you know, but it does have that, like, you can just picture it on screen and, like, be like, ugh. Yeah, why didn't she start there? <laughs> the most obvious place <laughs> to hide. That's she wasn't behind any of the pews. We, uh, we're out of ideas. Yeah, if you're playing like uh, a Sierra game style point and click video game and you walk into that room, that's the first thing you click on. It's the pile <laughs> of hides. <laughs> without without Every time. question. Every time. Um, but it's, this is, you know, I'm being hard on it. I, I think you can hear from our tone though, this is fun. This book is primarily fun, is how oh, yeah. I would describe it. The only, the only real criticism is it gets repetitive as it goes on of, you know, a bad guy's there, Don Diego shows up, the bad guys are like, oh, we're going to get that Zorro. And Don Diego's like, well, I hope you do. What times we live in, as he like pats himself with a handkerchief. And then Zorro shows up and is like, hey, I heard you were going to get me. You know, just like yeah. over and over. I like, think that's a consequence of two different things. One yeah. being vague about Diego's being Zorro. Yeah. And the other being vague about what exactly Zorro is rising up against. You know, yeah. the idea that he's mad that, you know, don't beat natives, you're a jerk, you know. It's, yeah. It doesn't give you much of a big picture for most of the story. So I think it really becomes one scene of Zorro having a sword fight and then the next scene it's Diego, you know, fun, fun scene with Diego and then back to Zor with the sword fight. Yeah. Sort of it does have a repetitive sort of narrative to it. I give you that. One thing that I found very interesting in the book um, that I think is fascinating and especially, you know, we can talk about, it needs to be mentioned, you know, that this, this uh, book and the movies influenced Batman. Batman is more or less based on this, right? I'm not a big comic book person, but Absolutely, Bob Kane 100%. says that he's based on it. His yeah. parents are killed outside of a screening of Mark of Zorro, uh, right? Mm -hmm. This movie has an interesting take at the end when it's revealed that he's Zorro. He doesn't say, it was me putting on an act. He says, I'm two different people. Yeah. I'm Don Diego and that's real. But mm. I'm also Zorro when I put on this hood and uh, and mask and um 
I don't know what that means. And Lolita's like, don't you think you could try and merge them? And he's like, I, maybe I will do my best to do that. But that he can find the, the valor, the courage of Zorro within the persona of Don Diego. Yeah. And it's yeah. fascinating as like a description of a superhero, essentially as a mental illness, as like multiple personality disorder, as like a psychical schism in that way. And in the context of sort of revisionist looking at superheroes, it's interesting that this isn't explored more uh, in comic books and in comic book movies, the idea that I'm literally a different person when I put on this costume and how that resembles mental illness. And the book faints at it in a way that's really fascinating. Obviously, the movies take it as it's all an act. I'm part of fooling you is that I'm pretending to be Don Diego and that's part of the fun. But mm-hmm. I think it's, it's interesting to think about Batman, who to me, I always find Batman so unpleasant because it feels like an insane rich person, right? Yeah. That it just feels like that guy is a bad, if that person existed in real life he would be a bad person he'd be the dude from Foxcatcher. well you know what they say yeah you know they say constantly in batman is that bruce wayne is the mask that the batman is the real person and that's all the persona adding the background to don diego in the movies i think gives you a little bit more of an of an understanding that diego is the costume he's putting on when tyrone power comes out in that hilarious get up at the dinner party you know oh my god it's like he's just trying to be it's amazing it's amazing visual gag yeah yes and then with the little uh uh, monog whatever that thing is that little the little glass that he holds up to his eye yeah it's amazing um yeah the little monocle thing uh so we understand more that like this is just an act he's putting on he's clearly not who he is he's this champion sword fighter everyone in spain thinks he's awesome yeah um but yeah you're right at the end of this it really does set up a i don't really know who i am and uh one moment i love in the story too is when lolita sees diego's library while she's staring at staying at his house yeah all these great books on these romantic poems and all these books on sword fighting and things yeah that are well worn why would he want to read this stuff i yeah. love the idea of like someone's library like telling you who they really are oh exactly yeah. exactly yeah. it's great yeah that essentially his library is like how to get laid and kick ass you know in 14 <laughs> yeah. volumes, you know? and she has to finally just decide like, well, what is this? well since, since he's obviously this big suck you know this weakling he obviously just loses himself in the romance of these things that he could never possibly achieve himself. Yeah. Maybe Bernardo's <laughs> reading them. Maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's who's delving into this library in some way. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating as a blueprint. And I think that also because the base story um, is so, uh, I don't want to say in need of correction, but because this isn't a perfect thing and it's obviously not a perfect thing, I think that gives it the flexibility for other filmmakers and writers and artists and TV directors to do their own spin on it. You don't feel like you're violating something sacred to make your own Zorro. You feel yeah. like you're taking the Zorro idea and doing your version of it. You know, it's I think a, it's, it's like template in our yeah. Spider-Man in that way, you know, and that that's a template. Yeah, stories. <laughs> exactly. That this is a good idea and I can do my thing on it. Whereas if you make uh, a, something from a much uh, uh, stronger voice, like the Count of Monte Cristo, I want to see that book. 
I don't want to see mm. your version of Count of Monte Cristo, Joe Johnston. You know what I mean? I don't want to see, you know, J.J. Abrams' Count of Monte Cristo. I want to see Alexander Dumas's Count of Monte Cristo, you know? I do want to see Kevin Rebels' Count of Monte Cristo. Exactly. Well, exactly. Just like a guy <laughs> who's going to, like, get out of the way, you know? Like, you yeah. don't want an auteur doing that one. Whereas Zorro, it's to just update it, do different versions of it, set it in the future, an animated version, set it in the past, a kid's version, a more adult version. You know, the even the um, the sort of uh, something that I wanted to talk about in the context of this book, too, um, is this book, more than any of the swashbucklers, I think is the one that lays the groundwork for the swishbucklers of the 70s and early 80s. And the swishbucklers are a term that we sort of, I think it was a typo we saw on Twitter, right? Wasn't it a Kevin Barr <laughs> typo? That um, we turned into like an actual phrase that describes these um, almost parodies of swashbuckler films, probably mainly pirate films that came about in the late 70s, early 80s, like Zorro the Gay Blade, Yellowbeard, Cheech and Chong's Corsican Brothers, Royal Flash, like those kind of Mm -hmm. almost parodies in which like the sort of dandyishness of the main characters and their sort of impossible uh, sense of style and panache, right? That their panache becomes the overriding joke of them. And I don't think that vision of what swashbucklers are exists without Zorro. You know, like that it's the one that sort of lays the groundwork for that idea more than any of the others, I'd say. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I think I just saw the, uh, speaking of the 70s, Spanish and Italian and French swashbucklers, I just saw the Alan Delon Zorro for the first time. Not good. Not very good. The ending sword fight is terrific. I'll give it that. Uh, the, the prolonged fight within, in the church is really good. Oh, but, yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, yeah. It's largely kind of uh, dull. It does, uh, does, does hit some of the tropes from this original story, like Frey Felipe being whipped and yeah. being assaulted by Captain Ramon. But it already feels like it's verging on parody. Yeah, you know, more than more than it is an earnest attempt to tell like a fun and adventurous story. So yeah, I think that it's I def- realized when I saw that movie the updatedness of the the, the valor yeah. in these is easy to to mock. That there's only one kind of role I want to see Alan Delon in, and that's sad gangster. That's the only role I want to see. I don't want to see Alan Delon in romance. I don't want to see him as a jealous lover. I don't want to see him in a swashbuckler. I don't want to see him as a hothead or a sociopath. I want sad gangster. That is all. Or cop, yes. Yes. (laughs) The sad boy in a crime movie is what I want Alan Delon for. Just sit there, you know, your beautiful pouty face, you know, in a downbeat crime movie. That's it nothing else and because it's it's as a man who's I'm with so you. overtly gorgeous and uh uh sort of charismatic he's not he's got no panache right yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that that's really true of him and zoro it describes at home like what a sluggish presence he is unlike mm-hmm. Belmondo, who's super duper lively at all times they also like, make the really strange kind of unfortunate decision to make his alter ego the governor he's the governor yeah and zoro at the same time just doesn't doesn't work they're two sides of a the bad, same coin john a bad a bad choice a bad choice yeah it's it's not it's not good. I remember it being one of the the worst movies <laughs> I saw when we were researching all the uh, the uh, yeah 
the swashbucklers. Not recommended. Um, we got off superheroes, but I did want to say that I'd found it amusing that the the league that, that comes together, the the Caballeros, who he stirs yeah. to to passion, are called they themselves the Avengers. Yes, yes. <laughs> just it by is. like just guys who have nothing better to do than to <laughs> go out and become superheroes. They're yeah. called the Avengers. <laughs> and more than any other swashbuckler, this one does, and obviously because it inspired Batman, does remind me of superhero stuff. And it does remind me mm-hmm. of The Shadow uh, and those kind of films are, are kind of characters. Because um, I, I think there is something simplistic and streamlined about this that is comic bookish in nature. Again, it's just super pulpy. It's just super duper pulpy in a way that most swashbucklers, especially the novels like the Sabatini book, Scaramouche, Captain Blood, Seahawk, or the Dumas books are historical fiction. And they cram in a lot of details about like what's going on in Jamaica at that point of time and what's happening in the, you know, the Yucatan Peninsula and or in Cartagena, like a lot of detail about what's going on in these different places, our court intrigue, you know, with with uh, uh, Rishlu and things like that that it goes into right. a lot of detail about that stuff and includes real historical figures as one of the hallmarks of the swashbuckler genres that you have you know Anne Bonnie and Blackbeard and Napoleon and you know Rishlu and the Queen of Spain all showing up in these books real people interacting with these um, fake characters as one of the hallmarks and this doesn't have any of that this exists. Yeah, it wasn't in, until the later movies that they tried to that they they put Zor within a historical context within 1820s uh, Mexican independence from Spain era Los Angeles. Yeah, it's fascinating. Just by coincidence, this is getting off track a little bit. I was reading a story, uh, a long form article this week about um, two brothers in Colorado. I want to say uh, in like the 1860s uh, during the Civil War, Felipe and Vivian Espinoza, who were Mexican brothers who were outlaws who felt like they had been um, unjustly had all of their property stripped away from them and uh, started fighting back against the white settlers after the portion of Colorado they lived to was given to Colorado by Mexico. And they were guys who, this article is very kind to them. They sound like murderous psychopaths to me, but they were essentially Mm -hmm. vigilantes who were like killing people who were like essentially press gangs that there were groups of soldiers going around saying, Hey, you got to join the union right now and Mm -hmm. fight in the civil war. And you know, they had had their own property and land seized and they just started like murdering random uh, white settlers, like shooting in the back and bashing in their heads with rocks until they were like completely obliterated and things like that. And I think it was like, I think they claimed to have killed 33 people and that there were like 12 confirmed kind of thing. But reading this article at the same time I was reading the book was like, oh, it's funny to read like, what does a real life version of uh don don diego look like well it looks like these guys who are probably actual criminals you know the reason that the police or that the soldiers came to talk to them at all was that they had been accused of you know doing holdups and so the police came to see them and burn their house down they escaped and then the police seized all the remaining property and they sort of went into hiding and just went on this murder spree right 
And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, that's a lot of stuff that we see described in this book, isn't it? Uh, you know, like it is. Well, groups yeah. of soldiers chasing after them. And so well, one of the what, one of the the influences on the character Zora was Yaquin Morietta, who was a, an outlaw in uh, California during the 1850s during the Gold Rush. Yeah, who was this is the same like a, This is yeah, like he, he was later. This is the Colorado Gold Rush. And like and like them, he was basically you know a cattle rustler, a kidnapper, a murderer. He's not a good guy. But after he was apparently caught and executed, his reputation, his myth grew and grew until it became it turned into you know a champion of the people. Yeah, and, got, and they even integrated that into the Martin Campbell Zorro, where yes. Antonio Banderas's character is his fictional brother, avenging like- his death. Yeah. And it's funny, I'm glad you bring up the um, the Martin Campbell Zorro. That's one I wanted to, to talk about too, the Mask of Zorro. You know, it's funny because you and I were both big fans of the 2002 Kevin Reynolds Curse of uh, Count of Monte Cristo, right? Mm-hmm. Great movie. A real, the last real legitimate swashbuckler ever made. When I was watching Mask of Zorro again, the Antonio Banderas, Anthony Hopkins, Catherine Zeta-Jones version from 94, is that when it's from? like 98 98 sometime a little bit later yeah yeah um i was thinking why don't i think of this movie as a swashbuckler and i don't and i think it belongs alongside there was a whole group of 90s films like the shadow and the phantom and even cutthroat island or the rocketeer that were like totally 90s like they weren't serialized things in the same way they were like 90s spin on serialized stuff whereas the mm-hmm. count of monte cristo is not a modern spin on it it's just that story and so it's fascinating to see like the ways in which we're going to update mask of zorro for the 90s or the phantom for the 90s where it takes so much from these old serialized pulp uh, works and makes them into like these Hollywood movies that somehow fundamentally feel outside of the genre. Or do you disagree with that? No, I don't. I agree entirely. I think the Martin Campbell Zorro is not a bad movie. I actually enjoy it. Yeah. It's, it's a fun movie, but I think it might just be, it might be doing too much. I think there might be just too many attempts at cleverness. Yeah. And like, let's, let's do this twist on the story. Let's do this, Ben. Let's bring in this subplot. Uh, even Antonio Banderas being the brother, I think is, you know, it's just doing too much. It's too involved in being different. Yeah. Which, you know, it's All not of those a bad movies thing. are more just, clever it, than rousing. It turns it into something different and the focus kind of shifts away from the fun. Yes. I agree with that. I, I mean, I think, I think, you know, the big epic dancing in that movie is what you said. It's very nineties. It's a very, even, uh, even like Tim Burton's Batman, I think, you know, the relationship between Bruce Wayne and Vicki Vale and that kind of is what they were going for with the Catherine yeah. Zeta Jones character, not the, not Lolita from this story where, yeah. you know, she has these real uh, complications, these real conflicts within her that she's trying to resolve. It's not interested in that. It really is just kind of interested in the kind of glossiness of that story. Uh, you think back to the Tyrone Power, Mark Zorro, mm-hmm. when he lets his guard down, when he's Diego, when he has the dance with her. And it's this beautiful moment where they kind of, she sees him, but then yeah. he has to immediately step, take a step back and become foppish again. And yeah. say he's so tired dancing you know but it's this beautiful moment where he's kind of revealed himself through this passionate dance that they have yeah 
and she and has this great like moment. no way moment you know that yeah 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 you, where she's like she can't believe it you know you just right. can't he's revealed it but she can't believe it either you know yeah but that's a gorgeous moment built around what those care where those characters are and what they're thinking whereas mm-hmm. i think the dance the big dance scene in marco's mask of zorro is about flash you know it's about just yeah. doing a cool dance scene it's very it's again a very 90s approach yeah yeah it's clever uh and and these movies it's also it's hard to make movies that are rousing that make you want to stand up and cheer like Digstown, mask of zorro as much as i enjoyed it doesn't make you want to stand up and cheer and i think a lot of those movies like the alec baldwin 1994 the shadow i enjoy them but they're gonna have like a cgi dagger in them you know what i mean they're just going to have stuff that that is both dated now and would never have been in the original thing you know even you Mm -hmm. know that's maybe more at home in the shadow but it just feels like we got a 90sify this stuff in a way that 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 dates them in a a, certainly it's it's difficult to from i mean when i say modern i mean the last 20 or 30 years you know just the modern film mentality of you need more explosions you need more set pieces you need more characters within a shot yeah and it's like all you need is take 10 years of my off my shoulders and i can dig you in the dirt you just need that moment you know yeah. you just need uh, the sword's not for a traitor you get the knife you know oh. and you just need that yeah. moment in a, in a film you don't need big giant epicness <laughs> you just need character moments that just hit you. No, exactly. Or like when, uh, you know, when uh, Captain Blood has the opportunity to buy uh, the, uh, the, the governor's daughter at a slave auction herself after she had bought mm-hmm. him. That yeah. moment's just awesome. That's all you need, you know? And mm-hmm. you go, oh, tables have turned, lady, you know? Um, yeah, those moments are part of the swashbuckler appeal, you know? That's part of it. It's not just like a little moment between the sword fights and between the uh, grabbing the, the knife and, and shimmying down the sail. Those moments are awesome, but these moments in between them are equally amazing. Yeah, yeah. Or like Scaramouche, like dueling his way through the parliament, you know, where yeah. he's just like, yeah. where is he? I'm here for murder. There's nobody else. I got to murder some other duke. Okay, I'll, you can <laughs> insult my honor. And that stuff is all awesome. It's, it's yeah. awesome. It's very enjoyable. This stuff is just enjoyable. Is is I cannot emphasize uh, enough about it. Um, and Anything else we, you have to say about uh, Curse of know, Capistrano specifically? Not really. I, w- I would say that you know, it's interesting to me the the Douglas Fairbanks version, which is made a year after this is publication, how closely it hues to it and how wrong it gets Don Diego. I don't know if you've seen it, but he's sort of like, of course, you know, he's got like his hair, Mm -hmm. like greased down and he's more like he's Don Diego's like a pervert creep. You know yeah, what he I comes mean? off really sleazy. Absolutely. He comes off like Peter Lorre. Even the way, his, him. <laughs> the way his hair is like combed down, like there's two strands of hair on his forehead. Yeah. It looks yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah, and like the, like, are, you know who he looks like? He looks like Frank Reynolds hosting the beauty pageant and Frank's little beauty <laughs> after he's had his makeup done by the mortician. That's what he looks like. So it's, you know, that movie's fun because Fairbanks is fun and it's a solid story. But you do definitely... You're right. I think, I think he was trying to go for something really funny, but it just came off as like... Good super creepy. Yeah. Creepy, yeah. He doesn't understand that Don... Part of the fun of Don Diego Vega, though, I would also say is that as a reader, you're a bit on his side 
because it's that Don Juan thing where he shows up and he's like, oh my God, I got to deal with this crap. Like, let me be, you know, that <laughs> yeah, yeah. really Don Diego <laughs> drives home the like pettiness of all of this, you know, that that character, that persona exists to drive home how petty everybody is being, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah you're going to thrust that guy who wants to be on the sidelines, who's literally wants to be on the sidelines so much. He's a separate person in this. You're going to like cause a psychical break in his head where he has to spring into action, which is one of the essential things of, of uh, a lot of the swashbucklers. Absolutely. And I will say the moment, the moment of the reveal in both the Fairbanks and the powers version is amazing. Yeah. The moment where he, as Don Diego fights uh, the, captain at the end of the fairbanks yeah and where he's in the jail and says have you seen this trick and then breaks out of the jail in yeah. the powers one those are both just great moments yeah yeah and again when he slashes the z and <laughs> into his fucking forehead and everyone's <laughs> like whoa that's awesome wait <laughs> that's the zorro z and his dad again yeah you tear up because his dad's like I knew it. I knew it. You know, he pulls a <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. kid in a uh, galaxy quest. Um, I can't even remember that actor's <laughs> name. The Mac guy in galaxy. Yes. Quest. I knew it. Justin knew Long. It. Justin Long. He pulls that at the end. Don Diego's dad, <laughs> the elder Don Diego. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to say about this? I'm really happy we read it. I'm really happy. Me too. I'm glad that that's finally, that's something that I, you know, felt like I should have wanted to do before and it just never even occurred to me. And this 100th anniversary of El Zorro was uh, a good enough time to do it. All right. Do you think you're going to start using the phrase meal mush and goat's milk on a regular basis? I forgot that it ends on that. The um, (laughs) Sergeant Gonzalez, who's like a blowhard. And it's funny too, in the Fairbanks version, I was trying to remember in the book, does he side with Don Diego in the book or does he get at the end? At the end, Don Diego offers to move the reward for Zorro to the bar uh, so that the soldiers, <laughs> Gonzalez and the, and the soldiers can have a tab at the bar so they're on his side. Yeah, because the, <laughs> the Fairbanks version has a like, hey man, we're buddies. I'm Don Diego. And he's like, okay, I'm on your side. Both times it's very unsatisfying uh, jettisoning that character in the um, uh, Tyrone Power version makes a perfect amount of sense. I don't know if there's a minor character in it who's Sergeant Gonzalez, but having... There is. He's the guy who gets, like, stripped and, like, thrown over the wall by Zorro. Oh, yeah. That's the only thing he does in that one. Yeah. But in the Guy Williams version, you know, he's uh, the most iconic version of him. I can't remember the actor's name, but he's this uh, hilarious heavyweight comedic actor. And by the end of the the movie version, he becomes the Commandante after they get him... They, they get Ramon thrown out. They're like, you're acting Commandante. And he's like, okay. Yeah. But like yeah, and again, resetting that character as comic relief is a good way of, yes. of dealing with that character. Again, of fixing this book, which, you know, you read the book and you're like, that's real good, but it needs improvement. Yeah, um, I think that's what the people have done. And I think that's, you know, yeah. a good function for this particular work. Yeah. To serve as just something that people can, you know, just punch up a little bit for their versions of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. A character that just needs a punch up. (laughs) Exactly. And it's, and it's, and it's also, there's room for improvement. It's also fine. If it's not, if you just read this, you'll have a good time reading. Absolutely. No, glad we did. Okay. Now, um, what John are our dessert pairings? Would you like for me to go first or you to go first? Something for you to eat and ingest after you've had your aperitif 
of the spider, and you have your meal of the Curse of Capistrano. And now for dessert, what are we going to have? So the dessert, I was going to say Yun Wu Ping's Iron Monkey, which is a a great version of the Zorro story. I was going to say that, but I think I'm going to change it up, though, Um, because because you should see Iron Monkey if you haven't, or if you haven't for a while. It's a very fun movie that you can watch again and again, and a great version of the Zorro story specifically. But I was thinking about the Don Diego split in this and how he uses that foolishness, that bumbleness to, you know, confuse his enemies and make them not suspect him. To me the best representation of that outside of the Zorro story is in Doctor Who. The Doctor yeah. char- character, you know, throwing his being bumblish, being scruffy, uh, seeming like he's, you know, not very good at what he does, throws his, his enemies off constantly. And that was created, that specific bumbling to underestimate his, for, for his enemies to underestimate his true abilities was created by Patrick Troughton, the second Doctor, who's my favorite yeah. uh, version of the Doctor personally. Um, he's known as a cosmic hobo due to his Chaplin-esque appearance. Yeah. Um, but he d- did that constantly where he would act, act dumb. He would act like he didn't know what was going on. And then he would get the better hand of his opponents in a very Don Diego fashion. Um, not foppishly, of course, but you know, in yeah. that same vein. Um, so I'm going to specifically recommend my favorite of his, which is appropriate. It's called the mind robber. It's one of the, the few complete serials that you can still see from the second doctor because so many of them were wiped by the BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great five episode serial from the fall of 1968 where the doctor and his companions are trapped in the land of fiction, which is overseen. Oh yeah. By, uh, yeah. By an earth writer, a pulp novel specifically. Yeah. I'm not a huge doctor who fan, but I've seen that one. You have seen that good because you'll know that there is a character called the carcass, right? Who is a, a mass adventurer, but from the future, from the, his companion Zoe's future. Yeah. So she knows who he is, and uh, Jamie and the Doctor don't know who he is. But he's basically, he's clearly a Zorro uh, type. And it turns out, reading about this serial, they actually wanted that to be Zorro. They just had copyright issues, but that was supposed to be Zorro because, yeah. you know, Gulliver and the Minotaur and Rapunzel all pop up throughout the serial. Um, so it would have been Zorro. So that would have been kind of cool. So it's appropriate. But more so, I think, because the second Doctor has this sort of Don Diego defense that he uses against his enemies. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I, that's a good selection. That's a good idea. That, that He's himself a science fiction swashbuckler in many ways. So, <laughs> um, I'm going to go with a heavier dessert, maybe a dessert that's heavier than even the meal, and say you should read Raphael Sabatini's Captain Blood. If you've That's read not this too story, heavy. That's a very readable book. Very readable book. It's much longer than this. There's much more detail, but I think it's, um, uh, I like Sabatini much more than I like Dumas, who are the, not much more, but I like Sabatini more than Dumas. Uh, oh, I absolutely who are, do. Who are the heavyweights of the swashbuckler genre. And that's his best book. It um, hues very close to the movie, I would say just with more uh, detail and complexity to it. And it's totally rousing. It's totally fun. Um, if you want to see what the sort of, heavyweight doesn't need to be improved version of a swashbuckler story is it's that where essentially again it's all about the press gangs where they essentially uh there's a war not even a press gang but there's there's a a rebellion in the small irish town that captain blood whose real name is blood he's actually dr blood to start the uh, to start the book dr. Uh, captain blood 
Yeah, happen, uh, is a doctor and he helps a wounded rebel and as a result gets forced into slavery and sent off to the uh, Caribbean to work as a slave before becoming a famous outlaw, you know, leading his own rebellion there and sort of trying to tame this wild, uh, you know, world of privateers and buccaneers and corrupt governors and, you know, comely maidens and things of that nature. And it's, it's, again, it's these books tap your sense of injustice very hard and give you a sort of uh, romantic ideals about fighting back, about freedom, about uh, self-determination and all of these sort of things. And then about romance, about true love between, you know, strong people with true hearts and that sort of thing. And I think it's, I think it's the best swashbuckler ever written certainly of the ones i've read um although i enjoy his version of the seahawk too a lot which i just read recently which is so very different from the movie and um it's it's great you should read it if you haven't especially if you enjoyed this and want something that's that's even a little more substantial and don't be uh don't be disappointed that you can't find like a really nice edition of it out i've noticed something about that that's uh, kind of confounding to swashbuckler collectors who can't afford first editions from the beginning of the 20th century, which is that they, nobody's put out like really nice. You think that these would have nice illustrations, nice covers. They yeah. come out in new editions. You could find like a really nice looking Scaramouche or um, Three Musketeers. I, I feel like swashbuckler literature is really just like the movies are undervalued in a really weird way. It's a neglected genre without yeah. question. Mm-hmm. And that it has, and it hasn't been reclaimed the way a lot of other pulp uh, genres have been reclaimed. It unquestionably hasn't. And exactly like Curse of Capistrano, I, the version that I got uh, is crummy. You know, it's full of typos. There's, you know, pages that are set wrong. It's, it's a piece of junk with a, extremely unattractive cover oh mine was in an anthology with a bunch of other stuff like the man who would be king and yeah you know, yeah mine is short adventure fiction some yeah. fly-by-night company pooped out some piece of garbage um but i'm glad to have that's read the it. actual name of it too yeah exactly the fly-by-night <laughs> company presents the worst possible version of this shit <laughs> Uh, and same thing with Captain Blood. Although I seem to remember, I read like a Penguin Putnam edition of Captain Blood, I feel like. I feel like it at least had an attractive cover, although I could be wrong. I got it from the library. I do think so. that there would be, so maybe there was, but uh, I have not seen a nice edition that I can like keep with my... My library for Lolita for for my Lolita to discover and and learn the true hero that John exactly (laughs) John I would be shocked if you had a well worn book of poetry and dancing and horsemanship if those books were in your library I got a lot of old Mad magazines (laughs) (laughs) I would I would have a Lolita moment if I saw those. God, that clip to be taken out of context. I'd have a Lolita moment, guys. <laughs> well, it's funny because oh. they changed the name Lolita and the Alan Delon Zora to Hortense or something like that. Yeah. And it's funny. It's like, really? I mean, I get the Namakoff connection probably made you want to rename the character, but Hortense? Yeah. Really? And it's weird that they changed <laughs> Zoro's name to Humber Humber. 
<laughs> strange that they did that for that version instead of Don Diego. That was definitely Alan Delon demanding that, I think. It created confusion, whatever they were trying to do <laughs> with it. Created a sense of confusion. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, you know, I think you and I certainly, you know, in our interactions with people on social media and getting out there into the world, there is not, there's hundreds of people uh, who have delved in the world of like old crime fiction. Like that is a well-worn genre and even old, uh, you know, like pulp pornography and, and things like that. There are tons of people delving into that world. And certainly, you know, old science fiction is not even a niche market anymore. Science fiction in all of its uh, capacities has gone mainstream. Things like, you know, uh, Lindsman or uh, Princess of Mars. I I don't even think Mm -hmm. you could call this niche literature anymore uh, with how popular it is. You know, things like Dune are as mainstream as it gets. And swashbucklers, they're still undervalued. They're still undervalued, and they're they're every bit as much uh, of interest and fun as any of that those other genres. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you consider that you know things like The Shadow have their you know Jim Steranko covers from the seventies and things like that. They've had mm-hmm. really cool editions. You would think there'd be better representations of these great stories. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. John, well, thank thank you, Chris. This is thank a lot you, of fun. John. I could Always talk love talking about bucklers with you anytime, all day, every day. <laughs> anytime, text, DM, conversation, anything. When there was that when there was TCM ran that uh, quadruple feature, that tetralogy of swashbucklers. That, that great programming, absolutely. Texting all night. Yeah. I forgot how bad Paul Heinrich is in the Spanish main. Oh, <laughs> yeah. How he is the main thing you got to do with a swashbuckler is cast the right hero. That's yeah. step one. Cast the right <laughs> hero, cast the right woman, and, you're, and, and then put Walter Slezak in it, and you're done. That's there it. You go. It's so close. It gets so close. With it's that. tough to get it right. It's tough to get it right, but I, I'd say it's also easy to get it right. This is a genre where there's, you know, it surprises me that Scaramouche isn't just known the same way you know, uh, singing in the rain is known. Yeah. You know what I mean? It surprises me that it's not as well known as, um, as the film noir is such a, you know, I'd say at this point, have more people seen an obscurity like gun crazy or blast of silence or Scaramouche? I'd say that based on my experience, way more people know what, what gun crazy is and have seen oh, 100%. nightmare alley than have seen, uh, sort of the Titans of the swashbuckling genre. Definitely more I've seen that than Against All Flags. Exactly. Sure. Uh, against yeah. All Flags, so good. Or even Mark of Zorro. I'm always yeah. surprised when I talk to people how few people have seen the, the Tyrone Power version. Mm-hmm. Too busy me watching too. watching mediocre Billy Wilder movies, if you ask me. <laughs> That's what they're up to instead. Trying to convince themselves that, you know, Frank Borzage and Edward G. Ulmer are geniuses. Um just kidding both of those guys have some great movies they really do that was i was just joking around and I'm, everyone's great we love movies do we yes do we love movies or do we, do we love the idea of movies john <laughs> like we should wrap this up we should uh and what are we doing every- next <laughs> Next, we're going to be doing the new Clint movie, Richard Jewell. 
Yes, we're going to be talking for our about film episode. We'll see how that goes. December. <laughs> so that so that should be fun. And what fun? That should be a conversation that we have to navigate carefully. Is that a reasonable description of what that should be like? We will be very very careful. <laughs> or not. Or not. Or we'll stick our foots in our mouths, whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Who wants to hear a boring podcast where everyone's being polite? I know and end up getting sued by Richard Jewell himself. Have a good night, everybody. Watch Against All Flags. 